0: Support for SyncBook Radio comes from listeners like you. Consider helping to make independent productions like SyncBook Radio possible by becoming a donor. Your generous gift helps to keep these unique voices broadcasting and exploring. Details about how you can help can be found at thesyncbook.com donate. Thank you. As he drove, Kevin said, I'm tired, really tired. Fuck this traffic, who are these people driving on the 55? Where do they come from? Where are they going? I wondered to myself, where are the three of us going? We had seen the savior and I had, after eight years of madness, been healed. Well, I thought, that's something to accomplish all in one weekend, not to mention escaping intact from the three most whacked out humans on the planet. It is amazing that when someone else spouts the nonsense you yourself believe you can readily perceive it as nonsense. In the VW Rabbit, as I listened to Linda and Eric rattle on about being three-eyed people from another planet, I had known they were nuts. This made me nuts too. The realization had frightened me. The realization about them and about myself. I said to Kevin, did you get a chance to ask Sophia about your dead cat? I meant the question sarcastically, but Kevin, to my surprise, turned his head and said seriously, Yep. What did she say? I said. Kevin, inhaling deeply and gripping the steering wheel tight, said, She said that my dead cat, he paused, raising his voice, My dead cat was stupid. I had to laugh. David likewise. No one had thought to give Kevin that answer before. The cat saw the car and ran into it. Not the other way around. It had plowed directly into the front wheel of the car like a bowling ball. She said that the universe had very strict rules and that that species of cat, the cat that runs into headfirst into moving cars, isn't around anymore. Well, I said, pragmatically speaking, she's right. Hello and good morning. I'm
1: William Morgan and you are listening to 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and TheSyncBook.com a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. You can find us online at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at SYNC42 and at SYNCbook.
0: Today we are reconvening in plenary session a meeting of the Ripadon Society because fish cannot carry guns.
1: That's a true statement. This morning on 42 Minutes we're going to consider the mysterious ways of the great punta. And we'll do this with the help of one of the Society's founding
0: members. Deedle, deedle, queep. Hello and good morning. I'm Douglas Bowles, and today we have the distinct pleasure of meeting the writer said to always have another rabbit ready to pull from his hat. K.W. Jeter is an American science fiction and thriller author known for his literary writing style, dark themes, and complex paranoid characters. Some of his works include The Kingdom of Shadows, Death's Apprentice, the Kim O oh series, and his steampunk novels for which he named the genre in a letter to *Locust* Magazine referring to his 1979 novel, Morlock Knight. Most recently, he published Fiendish Schemes and Real Dangerous Fun. Mr. Jeter was a close personal friend of Philip K. Dick and is likely the reason why Vallis is such a joy to read. We are honored to have him with us today. Hello and welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing real good. Wonderful. Is it true that you're really in Ecuador?
2: Yes, yes. Uh, You're hearing me uh, live from uh, uh, a town up in the Andes called Cuenca, here in lovely Ecuador. It's actually quite sunny and bright, you know, because we're on the other side of the equator. We're kind of, our seasons are a little bit reversed.
1: So you're quite the traveler, aren't you?
3: Uh, I've I've
2: gotten around a little bit, actually, in about... uh, uh, a week or so my wife and I'll be leaving for Madrid, Barcelona, Prague, Berlin, uh Leipzig, Dresden, then we're going to be uh at a little at a science fiction futurist conference in Nantes called Utopialis. Uh Nantes is well known for being the birthplace of uh Jules Verne. And then we'll probably wind up in uh, Ireland for a little bit. So yeah we I, I like to get around.
0: When I first experienced Vallis, I experienced it as a literary fiction. I had no idea that Phil was drawing on his own personal experiences from 1974 that he was exploring. We are led to believe that uh, the character Kevin in Vallis was based upon you. Is this true?
2: It's partly true. I mean, this is something I, I've told people before that, you know, when you use the phrase drawn upon something, when an author draws upon a real-life experience... You know, it's very much a subtractive process. So, I mean, there were notions that uh, were elements of, say, Tim Powers' uh, character and beliefs and actions so that Phil used to uh, sort of develop the character David in Valis. And I'm sure when you had uh, my friend Tim on your show, you, you might have talked about that. But again, it's 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 a subtractive process. You're not trying to give a total portrait of the source that those elements come from. You're taking the, those elements that help tell the particular story uh, that you're, you're trying to do. And so, yeah, it's it's, it's not a. a I, I'm sure Phil didn't mean it as a portrait or something like that. But he looked at say you know Tim. And said, "Well, there's elements of this person I know that uh, can help me tell my story." And apparently, he he looked at me because we were all palling around at the time, and thought, "Well, there's some elements of this person, but it's it's not a, a, a total portrait by any means."
1: Well, how do you feel about the work on a personal level?
2: Uh, on a personal level, the first half of the book I'm very you know I, I'm I'm very fond of because it's it, it it's it's the half of the book that has the most references to things that happen in real life and you know, like going to see the movie and and things like that. Um, the second half of the book is, is a, is a development of those things that happen in real life and goes much more into, you know, uh, Phil's imagination and things like that. And, you know, it's just like anybody's book, you know. There's going to be things that uh, you know you like better here than there, and, and and you know, admittedly, it's it's kind of a strange experience to 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 look at uh, an author's book, especially a book by an author that you greatly admire, and say, "Oh, wait a minute, I, I I remember that day, I remember that event," and so you know, yeah, I think it's maybe sort of a natural reaction, or at least it is on my part to look at the first half of the book and go, Oh yeah, I remember that day. I remember when Phil and I drove away from the hospital. I remember when we all went to go see that crazy movie. And so, yeah, I mean that, that, that's an interesting process. Even after this tremendous gap of years, we're talking about what over 35 years or something that those events happened. Um, so yeah, I mean, I look at the first half of the book and it's, it's got a little bit of a scrapbook uh, memory effect for me. That the uh, second half of the book doesn
1: 't to stretch your memory a little bit, can you tell us about the viewing of that movie
2: well let 's see that was uh, the man who felt Earth. well in real life. It was the man who felt earth the the Nicholas Rogue movie with um, david Bowie and the the events of going to see the movie happened very closely to what uh, uh, Phil you know describes fictionally in in, in the book Valis, uh, that uh, you know, for some reason, um, I, I saw this movie. I uh, went by myself to see it, and uh, and was and was so struck by it that that essentially I rounded up the gang and said, "Hey, look, we all got to go see this movie." I didn't go. I don't believe I said we all got to go see this movie because it has some bearing upon uh, you know uh, Phil's beliefs about the you know, nature of the universe, or what was going on with his experiences. I I pretty much encouraged everybody to go see the movie because I thought it was such a striking uh, movie for the science fiction genre. I mean, you just didn't see many films like that that were so intriguing and mysterious and uh, sort of thought-provoking. And so, yeah, my, my motivation in real life for saying, okay, let's all jump up and go see this movie was pretty much because I thought it was so intriguing uh, variation on 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 the science fiction genre and uh, so yeah the the description of going to see it in 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 the book of alice is is you know pretty much what happened you know, Were you guys
1: book. did you guys come back and, and analyze it along the same lines that you do in the book no no not
2: or at least not immediately um, I think at the time uh phil and i had some late night conversations and the notion of mysterious messages from the other side from the universe (laughs) filtering into our reality through um you know pulp fiction and movies and rock and roll music we had talked about things like that and so in some sense that kind of you know tied in to um what we were doing and for a while Phil kind of went on a bender of listening to uh uh David Bowie albums. He asked me to go to, you know, the record store and pick up some David Bowie albums for him and he listened to them very closely, you know, trying to get some kind of you know message out of them. And and obviously, you know, this was an experiment on his part, you know, see if there there was actual content there that in some way tied to some mysterious experiences he had had uh, which people with his biography know about, you know, the pink beam experience and all that sort of thing. Uh, but at a certain, you know, and, and some things were kind of, you know, pretty easy to, to, to hook up with that. You look at the, the lyrics for, uh, uh, Ziggy Stardust, let's say, and you can say, oh yeah, this guy ties up with the notion of a savior coming from another planet, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, but I also think, yeah, you know, I remember very clearly at a certain point, Phil saying, you know, I've taken a good hard look at these David Bowie albums, and I don't really think there's anything there that, that really ties in with what uh, he was working on.
3: Hmm.
2: But it was an experiment. I mean, you know, it was intriguing, and so you investigate it. And, uh, you know, even if, you learn even from a failed experiment. A matter of fact, you, you, you probably learn more from a failed experiment than from a successful one.
1: Yeah, because at the end of the movie, there's an album that the character puts out called like The Visitor or something that's supposed to have hidden messages for his family, and when the guy goes to go get it, like there's a David Bowie album advertisement behind his head. I noticed.
2: Yeah, there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so I mean, that I'm pretty sure that was Nicholas Rogue, the director, just kind of you know playing with people's minds.
1: And, that movie but, plays with your minds intentionally. It it's does.
2: I, um, I, I'm a tremendous fan of that movie. I'm, I'm, it's, been, it's been quite a while since I've seen it. Uh, I think a great deal of, of Nicholas Rogue and the, the movie and what it does is valuable uh, and uh, something worth you know, considering. Whether or not it has secret messages from the universe or whatever. Uh, tied into it, it's 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 a very worthwhile production.
0: Well, I think that's what's fun about Vallis, is that he does such a nice job of constructing something and saying this is undeniably real, and then moments later, he completely deconstructs that and says, "No, it probably wasn't real."
2: Well, this is it. I, I mean, it's one of those things where you know I've had this discussion with other people, you know uh since you know Phil's death uh and people, you know, deservedly, I mean, you know, taking a look at his books and you know deriving things from them. You know, there there's a real element of, like you say, deconstruction. Uh and in that sense, I, I think the the two parts of Phil's writing that a lot of times get overlooked when people are, you know, uh, considering it, uh, is, is the, um, transmigration, the novel transmigration of Timothy Archer and then the short story frozen journey where, you know, you really feel really almost scathingly investigated the notion that, you know, you can go too far down the rabbit hole, in terms of not believing in reality, the reality that surrounds you, or the, the apparent reality that you can get to the point where you are, you are, are so skeptical about the nature of reality that you, you wind up, uh, in a place where you're stuck. I mean, you can't, uh, nothing is real. Um, you can't lay your hand on anything solid. And there are tragic consequences to somebody like the, the character in, in the story Frozen Journey or uh, the bishop, Timothy Archer, in Transfiguration of Timothy Archer. You get to a point where, where you, you've, you've applied a, a solvent-like attitude to everything around you. Everything has dissolved. And, yeah, now what? Uh, and that's, that's not a good place to be in. And certainly, um, you know, that, that sort of consideration shows up very much in ballast. That this is a person who is uh, the the character Horselover Fat in in Ballas is aware that uh, you know this process that he's going through of investigating uh, what his experiences really mean. Uh, he's he's in danger of, of losing uh, you know a handle on on the entire universe on his entire uh, personal experiences. So in, in that sense, yeah, I mean, there there's an element that I think people sometimes overlook. You know, they're, they're, they're trying to find the answers, and at the same time, Phil was saying, you know, this process of trying to find the answers, you have to be very careful with.
0: And the other part of Valis that I really enjoy is the humor. Oh, sure. And part of that is the sarcasm of Kevin, and all his... Quips and so are can we thank you for dead cats and the great punta? Uh,
2: no, I think the great punta was actually something Phil came up with and, and we we all laughed about. Uh, maybe I maybe I did, I don't know. Uh, the thing about the dead cat, uh, that's one of my gripes about the book. I, I don't think Phil really, you know, his his depiction of Kevin's uh talking about the dead cat isn't very similar to the way I talked about my dead cat. Uh but uh yeah, I mean I had a cat. Well actually I didn't have a cat. Uh this was a stray cat who whose death I observed. And uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean this is it. I I mean I, I I talked about it at length, you know, maybe you know too much length with Phil when we had our late night conversations. And for me it, it was, you know, a sort of refutation of the notion that, you know, God's eye is upon the sparrow uh, and this sort of thing that, you know, God looks out for creatures and uh, is essentially benign. And, and so in that sense, it's a, you know, it's a refutation. As much as observing any creatures suffering and death, it, it is can be seen as a refutation of that. But at the same time, there were just, you know, things that uh, Phil put in about that, that stupid cat that really weren't very similar to my, to, to the cat that I was talking about. <laughs> and, you know, so, you know, but then again, that's what, you know, a writer does when he writes a book, he changes things around. So it suits what he's, what he's doing, but it wasn't a cat that I owned. It was a stray cat and that, um, I fed, uh, I mean, I was married to my first wife at the time and, uh, the stray cat hung around because, Interestingly, and this is something I talked to, to Phil about, this cat had an obvious crush on the dog I had. I had a dog, <laughs> uh, a dog that um, was, was, a, was a very charismatic dog. I mean, I've talked to uh, uh, Jim Blaylock about this, and he says, oh, yeah, I still remember that dog. Um, it, it was a wonderful dog, uh, uh, had a lot of personality. And for some reason, this straight cat had formed a crush on it, and just adored it and wanted to be close to this dog. And the reason why the dog the, the cat got hit by the car was because I was walking the dog late at night and the dog and the cat was following us uh, because it wanted to be close to this dog. And and it was it was it was like a, a teenage girl's crush on a movie star or something. <laughs> I was. I was always. I had never seen this before. You know, in in, in a cat, a stray cat, or any kind of a cat, to have a form of crush on, on another creature like that, yeah. Except maybe a human being. Um. And 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 it struck me how cruel it was that this cat got killed uh, when it was acting out of this this. Love this adoration it had for this dog that it wasn't stupidity on the part of the cat that killed it, it was love and i thought this this is this is almost sadistic on the part of of some kind of benevolent omnipotent deity to have to have this cat love uh, another creature and then die because of it and uh you know that was you know the point of the story though that I was constantly harping upon to to fill when I when I talked about this cat and somehow that that element that that was the cat's love not not its stupidity or anything
3: huh.
2: that uh, that in some way was responsible for his death so yeah you know, yeah this this is you know, okay yeah I mean it's one of my gripes about the book Valis is that this this one element of reality. Didn't get translated into the book with the with the sort of depth and richness and irony of the real life uh, events that Phil uh, in his role as writer Extracted an element out of it that I thought was essentially kind of you know mm, Not very interesting huh. I mean the the, the the dead cat story in, 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 in the book it, it is not as interesting to me as the dead cat story that was in in real life,
1: but you know then again, i
2: mean that's what you know a writer does
1: do you have any other like interesting um stories about of, about Phil that you really haven't expressed to anybody in a, quite a long time
2: no i I pretty much got it. you know there there's such an interest in, in in phil dick and and deservedly so i mean he's a he's he's one of the great twentieth century writers. And, uh, you know, after he died and, and more and more interest in his books, you know, it uh, came about, you know, I, I got interviewed, you know, quite a lot. I mean, people were, you know, naturally, you know, uh, keen to, you know, see if there was something that somebody like me or Tim Powers or Jim Blaylock or some of that other crowd, uh, you know, his last group of friends uh, there in Orange County, California, you know, you, you, it's the same reason people read any kind of biography or autobiography of, of, of a person they're interested in. They're looking for some kind of clue to, 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 you know, magic key that will sort everything out, bring everything into focus, you know, provide the, the missing element so that you have an understanding about whoever it is you're, you're interested in, whether it's a, a great writer like Phil Dick or George Washington or, or whoever. and, the, the only problem is, is that you know i look I, at one time i used to read a lot of biographies uh, and and i i think one time i read like five or six biographies of of the poet dylan thomas and and i thought i you know got a pretty good handle on um, on dylan thomas after phil died and i read other people's you know the biographies that that got written about him and and the articles and the analyses and everything like that and i thought Wow I mean this isn't this isn't five percent of what I remember about Phil. I mean it's not that it's wrong or, or something but it, it's so incomplete um, and and so you know just essentially not you know the the, the, the the living being that I had even only just a few years contact with. And so, I mean, to me, that kind of uh, reduced a lot of my faith in, in sort of the biographical project that now I, I, I read a book or an article about uh, uh, somebody and there, there's always a, a sort of sense of, at the back of my mind that, you know, this probably isn't even close to, to what the, the, the real human being was. I mean, it's valuable. You get a lot out of it. You, it, it helps in everything. and everything. And obviously, some biographies are, are more accurate than others. But you're, you're really talking about a, a sort of project that, um, you know, uh, like I said, I don't have the faith in it that, that, that I did before. But then again, I hadn't had the experience before of knowing somebody that, a lot of other people were going to be interested in after his death. So that's that's kind of a, a, an interesting experience in itself.
3: Hmm.
1: So um, what do you think the biggest thing people misunderstand about Phil is?
2: Well, you know, this is something I've talked about, and I realize that, you know, for a lot of people, I'm never really going to be able to get this across, and it's going to be something that they're going to say, well, that's, you know, K.W. Jeter being a, a real skeptic and being sort of a corrosive personality. And, I, and I've, I've, I've always tried to get this across that say that Phil in his investigating uh, the experiences that happened to him, you know, the things that get referred to in, in uh, what got, he wrote as, you know, the exegesis and things like that. I don't think people really take it into consideration that anybody, but especially somebody with with a with a with a mind like uh, a, a creative mind like like Phil's. He was able to keep something in his left hand while still doing something else with his right hand. And in his left hand, when he was thinking when I talked to him about, you know, his thoughts uh, about, you know, the experiences he had constantly in his left hand and, and he would say this quite forthrightly, he'd say, look, I'm, I'm constantly aware that the real explanation of these amazing experiences that, that happened to me, the real explanation is that they don't mean anything at all. That this was a, and he would refer to himself in the third person that there was this you know, science fiction writer who had gone through some tough times and kind of crazy notions and everything like that with, a, with a, obviously an incredibly creative mind and something out of his subconscious you know, erupted and made him believe that certain things were happening. And the real explanation of those experiences is that they, they really don't mean much at all. That's kept in his left hand While his right hand is simultaneously saying, but if they do mean something, (coughs) maybe this is what they mean. And so I think sometimes people pick up something like, you know, the exegesis published a few years ago, his writings about, you know, his, his experiences. They pick up that, and that's what Phil was doing with his right hand, and there's no indication in the exegesis of, the, of what he was holding in, the, in his left hand at the same time. That just because he wrote, well, maybe the meaning was this, maybe the meaning was this, maybe the meaning was that, there's no indication at the same time that he's also simultaneously saying, but there may not have been any you know, special deal about those experiences at all. And so I think the skeptical nature of Phil's thinking about his experiences that gets expressed through books like *The Transmigration of Timothy Archer* or a short story like *Frozen Journey*, the skeptical nature k- kind of gets lost, and people just see the exploration of what the the experiences could have meant, and they and they believe therefore. Phil actually did believe that this is what they meant, and and they they forget about or they're not aware of what he was. So he was at the same time very skeptical about them, and so I, I I wish, or 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 I think it would be valuable if people constantly remember at the same time that that Phil was investigating these things, you know, through through his memory and his analysis of them. At the same time, he he was actually very skeptical about them, you know, simultaneously.
0: Did that make him crazy, or was he a fairly grounded individual?
2: It uh, didn't make him crazy at all. I, I mean that 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 made him much like, you know, everybody does or everybody should. I mean, at, I mean, granted, most people don't have experiences with pink beams and messages and things like that. Most people look at the experiences of their life and if, if, if they're grounded in reality, you know, you look at something that somebody said to you and you, 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 if it's something that upset you or disturbed you or intrigued you in some way, you try to figure out what that person meant when they they said that. And maybe you came up with an explanation about what the person meant, but at the same time, you know, if you're grounded, you, you kind of say, well, you know, maybe that's what they meant, but I don't know for sure. Maybe I need to ask them. Maybe I need to ask somebody else. Maybe I need to give them the benefit of the doubt. This sort of thing. I mean, we we have this enormous brain inside our skulls, you know, the as, as a tool basically for figuring out what other people mean when they when they do stuff and, and say stuff. It's our social interactions with other human beings that have revolt that have you know resulted in the evolution of, of, of the human brain. And so we have this enormous thing that other creatures don't have, which is constantly working, trying to figure out what's going on. And um, so we have this, and we have this enormous tool, and it gives us the ability to simultaneously say, well, maybe it meant this, but maybe it didn't. Hmm. And that's a healthy thing. And that's exactly what Phil was doing uh, when he when I remember him investigating and, and writing the exegesis and things like this, he was constantly doing the same thing that we all do all the time that that our brain is evolved for. Maybe it means this, but maybe it means this. Maybe it doesn't mean anything at all, and that's what healthy people do. And 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 Phil was being a healthy, grounded human being when he was doing that. Granted, he was applying that enormous tool that we have inside our uh, inside our skulls for some very unusual experiences, and very unusual things that happened to him that that don't happen to most people. But at the same time, he, he was he was investigating it in the way that a healthy human being does and that that a sane human being does.
0: Speaking of reality, your consideration of the realness or maybe it's just the the more aliveness of the Victorian era, era led you to consider that realm steampunk and and so i'm i'm wondering about the realness of then compared to the less realness of our moment
2: well yeah i mean in in, in some ways you know it, it, it it's kind of a temptation to look at other periods or other people's experiences and see them in sort of a, a reduced way only we don't even know that's what we're doing and 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 they seem more genuine uh, in in some way. Uh, It's very easy, and it's one of the reasons why people do get involved in sort of historical enthusiasm. You know, they'll get involved in, say, reading books about the Civil War or the Victorian period or the space race or something like that. You know, because it, 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 it seems more observable in some way. Uh, you've got these pieces of the puzzle, and you don't have to worry about the pieces that aren't there. And so you can look at it in a way that it's, it's much more difficult to look at what's happening to you at the present moment. Uh, we don't know what's going on in Iraq, uh, let's say, or we don't know what's going on in Washington, D.C., and we won't know what's going on until a few years from now, and we get more information. And so it, it, it's, it's kind of fun uh, uh, and interesting and intriguing to look at something like the Victorian period or the Civil War or something like that and say, well, now now we've got a better idea of what was going on and things that were probably mysterious at the time. Now we know that this was going on. And, 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 and that's, like I said, that's fun and, and, and intriguing. And, and sometimes you can get some really good results like if you're, if you're a writer, and and you want to uh you know you know write about you know a a fictional fantastic story in in the victorian era we know a lot of stuff about the victorian era and and we can have a lot of fun using those elements and yeah i I mean it's one of the paradoxes of, of of life that's you know something that happened hundreds of years ago can seem more real to us than what's happening right at this moment, just because there's things happening right at this moment that we won't know about until years from now, uh, and then they get revealed. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's, that's kind of a fun thing.
0: With one of the comments that you, you make, and I'm re- referring to the introduction, uh, uh, I think it was in Infernal Devices, the introduction to steampunk, and you're speaking about how the Victorians kept secrets and, and it's interesting because I think uh, Wallace Stegner kind of explores something similar I- in his look at the same time period, which is that there was something to not having it all out there, which is interesting in, in light of what's going on now with tweeting and the internet. What do, what do you make of now versus then?
2: You know, it, it's, it's it's something that uh, a lot of writers, I think, have found, found fruitful and in, in productive in looking at, uh, you know, trying to create a story in, in, a, in a different historical period. Uh, we're, we're, we look at things like that and, and, and we say, compared to the way it is now, it was not only much more possible to maintain a private, secret life, but people felt that it was appropriate to, to do that, and you could have secrets, and you weren't, you know, sort of constantly having your privacy drained away from you, and and people, you know, had a, had a sort of reticence uh, about, uh, say, talking about themselves. That uh, you know, somebody like certainly, Miley Cyrus or or Kim Kardashian doesn't have the same uh, uh, compulsion towards privacy that that say somebody in the Victorian era would, and, and, and at the same time, there, there weren't the same sort of Twitter, Twitter and, and Facebook tools for revealing your and disposing of your privacy that we have now. And so, yeah, I mean, uh, really, every novel is, or every story, is a sort of revelation at the end of what was secret at the beginning. I mean, it's a process of something being exposed. And if there isn't something that's covered up or kept secret, then it's very hard to reveal it. Um, And, you know, it's a different process, obviously, for uh, a writer who's, who's, you know, setting novels and talking about the big events, big processes of of what's going on right now. Say somebody like Thomas Pynchon or Tom Wolfe, uh, you would say, you know, he, he's he's under a different sort of uh, marching orders than than somebody writing a book said in, in the Victorian era. Uh, somebody like Thomas Pynchon or Tom Wolfe, they're they're in some ways more like reporters, or the, or they combine the job of a, of a reporter with the, with the with the job of of a fiction writer, and not quite the same thing when when you're talking about you know the victorian period uh go ahead
3: oh
0: i was just i wanted to take it another level so you're talking about exposing things what is what is the kingdom of shadows then
2: oh kingdom of shadows i mean yeah, that that's a, a, a historical novel uh i wrote uh, it's not available in print you, know, you can really only get it as a an ebook uh, right now um it's it set in, in the, the pre-World War II period and then during World War II and then a little bit afterwards. And it's it sort of set in um, the, the film industry. Uh, obviously, there was a film industry in, in the Third Reich, and it was sort of very sinister and glamorous. And there was a film industry, obviously, in Hollywood at the same time. And when I went to write the book, it struck me that nobody had had really done much fictionally with this material, uh even though we're we're we're, we're aware of some of the the characters involved in it. I mean, like you know the, the it, there's a fictionalized account in 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 my book of of an encounter between um, the great German film actress Marlene Dietrich and uh the uh the third reich's head of propaganda joseph goebbels where goebbels was a notorious womanizer he was constantly you know uh you know putting pressure on on the the actresses of the of the german film industry during the uh the third reich uh you know for sexual exploitation and um he tried to do that with marlena dietrich who hadn't left germany at the time and and to her credit, you know, Marlene Dietrich, you know, it's well known from her biographies. She, she told Goebbels to go fly a kite. Uh, she wasn't interested, and she packed up and left for Hollywood. Uh, and, uh, you know, like I said, very admirable of her. And she became, during the war, she became uh, 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 very much involved in supporting the troops, the American and Allied troops. And she would go to the, virtually to the front lines to entertain the troops while they were, you know, going across Europe uh, fighting the Nazis. And I took that event, and I fictionalized it. There's, a, you know, two fictional characters in, in in my book that are essentially based on Goebbels. Well, actually, it is Goebbels, and, but there's a, another character, a fictional character, an, an actress who who essentially does the same thing that uh, Mar, Marlene Dietrich did in real life. You know, she tells Goebbels to, to go fly a kite. And, and so, yeah, I mean, but that's, again, that's what writers do. They, you know, especially if they, if they're, you're writing, uh, in, in setting their stories in historical periods, you know, they, they sort of, you know, prowl through the, uh, the toy box looking for bright shiny objects that they can use for their, 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 their story. And, uh, you know, so, so, I mean, in that sense, uh, that's me looking at Marlene Dietrich and Joseph girls and saying, I can use this for the story I want to tell. In the same way that Phil Dick looked at uh, me and, say, Tim Powers, and said, yeah, I can use a tiny little element of this and use it for, for my story. I mean, it's, it's just one of those things that writers do.
1: We, we talk a lot about, you know, subconscious patterns popping up in artist work, whether they be, you know, a painter or a novelist like yourself. I mean, is there anything that you've noticed that, that seemed to be, reoccur unconsciously in your, in your work?
2: Uh, you know it you you're you're, you're on to something there uh it's something I think writers don't really notice until sometime afterwards uh, and uh, when when you know they go back over stuff that they wrote years ago and I've noticed that there there's 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 a theme of of sort of the lost father that at the time I was writing a lot of my my books. Um, uh I, I wasn't as aware of as I am now. But now I, I go back and look over that over a lot of things. And I see there there's a, a constant sort of recurring element in a lot of my books of some of a character somehow trying to connect with the memories or whatever else is left over after you know uh, his father has uh, has gone. And yeah, I've had to think about that because it's not really a, a it doesn't have a, a, a really close resemblance to what happened to me in, in, in real life. I, I, I mean, I, I knew my father, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I was, you know, an adult when he died. And, um, you know, so, so in the sense of something happening in real life, uh, that didn't happen for me. But in terms of taking an element and using it in, in my fiction, uh, I'm still trying to, to figure out why, why that element uh, shows up so often. I mean, it shows up in, in the steampunk stuff. Uh, the character George Dower uh, is constantly trying to figure out these inventions uh, left behind by his father, and everything kind of revolves around that. And yeah, it's it's just something that uh, I, I look at, and I, I'm still trying to figure out uh, exactly what that means.
0: Well, that was 42 minutes. Thank you for sharing it with us.
2: Really? Wow, that went by fast.
0: It really did. It's like <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't feel like we we got into anything. I mean, we did. Yeah, we did. We <laughs> did. You've been listening to K.W. Jeter on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com. More information about Mr. Jeter's work can be found at kwjeter.com. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests, to check out past shows, or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at 42minutes.com. If you like the podcast, please support it by becoming a donor. You'll find the donation links under each episode on the website, and consider setting up a monthly charge. Thanks so much, and human beings might yearn for lost things, but never for unreal things.
4: Falling in love again Never wanted to What am I to do? I can't help it Love's always been my game Play it how I may I was made that way, I can't
3: help it.
4: Men cluster to me like moths around the flame. And if their wings burn, I know I'm not to blame. Bye.
0: Thanks. I I just finished Death's Apprentice. It's funny because I've been. I it seems like the the works that I most recently read of yours definitely conjured kind of a dark fall moment for me and the northern hemisphere. All right.
2: <laughs> well, a uh, Death's Apprentice I wrote while I was still in San Francisco. Yeah, and it was kind of a little, little bit gloomy at the time.
1: I'm fascinated by Mar- Marlene Dietrich now. Okay, I don't think that I knew very much about her.
2: She she had a, she had an absolutely fascinating life. She was an incredible personality as well as uh, actress. And uh, yeah, yeah.
0: And the Labens program that you feature in that is that real?
2: Yeah, that that actually existed.
0: So there were like SS yep. prostitutes, basically. Basically, yeah. The yeah. the finest ladies of Nazi Germany were offered up to the finest. Of the yeah. wow,
2: yeah, it, it was a crazy thing.
0: Huh, oh, man, oh, and then the the interesting little coincidence I noted was that your the Lazarines the yes they the, the revealing racial trait was they had different colored eyes. Yeah, heterochromia.
3: Yeah,
0: which is uh, like David Bowie.
2: I, yeah, he's got one eye that that uh, the the pupil is damaged.
3: Oh, okay. And, and so
2: one pupil is always uh, slightly enlarged. If you look at the, uh, uh, I think it's very visible in the cover of uh, the album uh, uh, Heroes, you can see that one of his pupils is 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 bigger than the other other pupil, and apparently it's because he got struck in the eye in a fist fight when he was a kid. Hmm. Yeah. But but yeah yeah the, yeah the the difference between eyes yeah there you go so maybe that means something I don't know
0: <laughs> <laughs> but then did, did you do you you definitely explore things in your work but then as far as Phil really trying to get at the heart of meaning how do you, how do you square your own work with like the kind of journeys and explorations he took.
2: Uh, you know, I don't think I'm, I'm the same kind of thinker about that sort of thing. He is, um, uh, part of my skepticism, uh, maybe a reaction to having known him and, uh, you know, there was a time where he was skeptical about me when I, you know, I, you know, I've talked about this, that, that we met when I was a college student. And we were friends for a little bit, and I was very flattered to, you know, be hanging around with a with a famous writer like, like Phil. And then uh, he kind of cut me off uh, really very rudely. And it wasn't until years later that we, you know, became friends again. And I found out that, you know, he suspected me of being a, you know, uh, a government spy, uh, <laughs> you know. And I thought, well... Crap, this is what, you know, being all skeptical about reality gets you. You know, next thing you know, you're you're thinking some some college kid who admires you is, is a government spy. Uh you know, it's like, well, you know, so much for skepticism. Uh but yeah, but at the same time, I mean, like like we were talking about during the show, uh that's what that's why we have this great big brain inside our heads that other animals don't have. You know, so we can look at look at things and, and try to figure out what they mean. And, and at the same time, I mean, we have this tool and healthy, sane people, which Phil certainly was, uh, have the ability to, to, to change their minds. I mean, that's why we have a phrase, change your mind. Uh, I mean, probably dogs and cats don't change their minds the way that human beings do, but they don't have the same tool for doing it that we do. Um, so in that sense, you know, skepticism, yeah, it's a very valuable thing. Uh, but at, 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 on the, same, on the other hand, yeah, every once in a while you have to decide that some things are real.
0: Okay, and so with, this isn't a hologram, we're not...
1: Yeah, I don't think <laughs> So we, course, did did Phil try yeah. to really absolve your sins? No, he never did.
2: No, <laughs> no never did. Yeah, you know, I, w- I probably wouldn't have let him if he had tried. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, that's great. Thank you for... Thank you, uh thank you for I'm I'm really happy to I mean, so it's funny because like I said, I experienced Ballast as a piece of fiction and then yeah. I found out that elements of it were based on reality. Yeah. Sure. And that led me to you and I'm I'm happy to have found you in your work because I think it's very good. It's really remarkable to me that Phil's friends would become such accomplished writers themselves. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, it's
2: funny that you know, me and, and Tim Powers and Jim Blaylock you know, that there would be three of us, you know, all college students at the same time. And, you know, yeah, just one of those things that worked out.
0: It's got to mean something. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to mean something.
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. There, yeah, yeah. Something that landed one day
0: that, when the religion started, you'll probably yeah. be one of the, you know, yeah high
2: priests. Or, or it's just one of those crazy things.
0: I, yeah. So how did
1: he affect you as a writer? Pardon? How did he affect you as a writer? Has he influenced your style per se?
2: Uh, it's something that both uh, Tim and I, and I think also Jim, have talked about that, you know, even, even if we hadn't known uh, Phil personally, he would have affected us because he was such an important writer. And it's probably the, the humorous element more than anything else that, uh, you know, these big, dark, serious things will be going on and then, you know, something funny will happen and And um, Phil Dick was so skillful at that that uh, you know, I think uh, that more than anything else is what Tim and Jim and I picked up on as an influence on our writing more than anything else.
1: Hmm. Wow well have a pleasant day. It was wonderful talking to you. It soon. really was.
2: Well, it was great talking to you, and um, that was a lot of fun that was and, good. Uh, maybe We'll have a chance to talk again sometime.
0: Okay. Safe we travels. We appreciate that. You bet. Okay. Bring it off. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.
4: Glowing, 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 we to we glowing, glowing, to smoking pistol